Well, uh, this, this character that we're going to study today gets 13 chapters of the Bible. Now, that's amazing. Adam and Eve got three, okay? The whole creation story is done in two, and our character today gets 13. So we learn about our character, about Genesis 37, with a very dysfunctional father. We have a dad who's uh, showing favoritism. Now, those of us in the room that have more than one child, we know that's a big no-no, right? I don't really get that. I don't understand how Jacob could show favoritism toward his son, Joseph. We have three children. I have a favorite 23-year-old daughter. I have a favorite 22-year-old son. And I have a favorite 16-year-old girl. And they're all my favorites. I, I don't understand how Jacob could show favoritism, but he did. And then we learned that Joseph not only knew he was the favorite one, but he wore the special coat. I mean, it's one thing to know that you're the favorite child, but it's another thing to flaunt the coat around. And have, have any of you in the room been to a pig roast before? Raise your hand if you've been to a pig roast, okay? Raise your hand if you never want to go to a pig roast in your life. There, there's a gazillion flies at a pig roast, right? Well, this young man kind of wears a tuxedo to an Indiana pig roast. It's about the same. These guys are wearing their overalls and their boots, and they come in, okay, robes and sandals. They come in, and there their favorite brother is wearing a tuxedo. We learned then that he was just going out and not really working, but just giving reports about how the brothers were doing, and he would always give a bad report. He would always bring a bad report back to his dad. And the brothers one day said, you know what? Here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him. And they decided to kill Joseph, their brother. And one brother decides that he's going to save his life, and so they end up selling him to the Ishmaelites, and then the Ishmaelites end up selling him to Potiphar, and uh, Potiphar then didn't really worry about his household because Joseph was in charge. What happens next? Mrs. Potiphar gets involved. You've read the story, haven't you? Mrs. Potiphar has the hots for him, and he sexually, you know, has integrity, and he ends up in jail. He does the right thing, and he ends up in jail for two years. And while he's in jail, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, they both have dreams, and they can't interpret the dreams. And Joseph said, well, my, my heavenly father can do that. And so the chief baker is going to be killed, and the chief cupbearer is going to be restored. And so sure enough, in three days, the chief cupbearer was restored. The chief baker was killed. And Joseph said, remember me. Remember me before Pharaoh. But the chief cupbearer forgot about him. And then Pharaoh has a dream. A couple of years later, Pharaoh's got a dream, and he can't understand these seven fat cows and seven skinny cows and seven fat heads of grain and seven really, you know, storks. heads of grain had all just been uh, just dried up. And so the chief cupbearer says, well, I know somebody who can interpret dreams. I forgot about him. I left him in prison two years ago. And so they call Joseph and Joseph comes out and he has a great relationship with Pharaoh. And he says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I'll tell you what the dream means. You got seven good years and seven bad years. And this is what I would do during the seven good years. I'd store all the grain. I'd build warehouses and Walmarts and Kmarts and use those big old old houses and store all your stuff inside of them. And that's exactly what Pharaoh said you're going to do. And so Pharaoh, in just a matter of days, has Joseph become the secretary of agriculture (laughs) and the vice president of the country. 
And then as the story unfolds, you remember how Joseph then reveals himself to his brothers and there's all this amazing forgiveness and the dad and everybody comes over. Maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the point of those 13 chapters. No, that's not the point at all. Well, maybe the point's what's on the screen. If you would turn your attention to the screen right now and look at this. Maybe, maybe this is the point. You'll notice that there's a great amount of comparison to Jesus and Joseph. Joseph and Jesus have over 18 different comparisons together. Uh, look at the top left. Uh, you know, they were both dearly loved. They were sold for the price of a slave. They both wept. They were falsely accused. They were loved by the father. They were bound in chains. They were with two other prisoners. Their robes were taken. Wow, they were both 30 years old when they began their ministries. Just look at those nine or ten different things that are comparing Joseph to Jesus. Maybe, maybe that's the point. Why in the world 13 different chapters? Is that why we have all that information? Again, folks, the answer would be no. Thank you. The answer would be no. Why is this story in the Bible? Well, there's a main plot to why Joseph takes up 13 chapters in the Bible. And there's all these different subplots that we look at and we go, you know what? This is a pretty good story. If we just were like Joseph, if we could just become like Joseph, we would live a pretty good life. That's not why there's 13 chapters in the Bible. There is a main plot to your life. But if all the subplots in your life take over and get overwhelm you, you'll never understand why you were created. You'll never understand why you exist. There's all these subplots in Joseph's life. There's the brothers, there's the favoritism, there's the coat, there's the forgiveness, there's the grain. Those were not at all the reason we have 13 chapters. You and I have got to discover what the main plot to our life is. And yet, how do we do that? When we have all these subplots in our life that can distract us, that can eclipse our vision, or maybe, like Joseph, all these subplots in Joseph's life, they propelled him forward to understand the main plot of his life. Now, you've got subplots. Everybody in the room have got subplots. Subplot, 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 subplot. Or you could say drama, 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 drama. Or you could say hardship, circumstances, pain, problems. Everybody in the room has subplots. If you're 12 years old, you've got relational subplots. Everybody in the room has subplots. If you're 12 years old, you've got relational concerns with mom and dad, maybe with brothers and sisters, maybe with coaches and teachers. You get a little bit older, and then you begin to date. And you got, oh my gosh, now we got drama, right? There's ranger drama. There's drama in the whole house when you begin to date. And, and then there's relational subplots with work people. There's relational subplots with your spouse or with your former spouse or with stepkids or with aging parents. Everybody in this room... Have got, has got relational subplot after subplot after subplot. You've got vocational subplots. You're trying to figure out how to make a living. Or you're trying to figure out how not to lose what you have. Or you're trying to figure out how to spend it or save it. Or how to get a better job. Or how to downsize. Or how to, how to, how to make the thing grow bigger. Everybody in the room 
has vocational and financial subplots. Everybody in the room has some kind of health subplots going on. I want to gain 10 pounds. I want to lose 30 pounds. I need to exercise. I need to stop exercising so much. Everybody in the room, drama, subplot, subplot, subplot. And if you look at the life of Joseph, the life of Joseph, we could preach 13 or 14 different good sermons on. We could talk about forgiveness. We could talk about sexual integrity. We could talk about, you know, abandoning your family and reuniting with your family. We could talk about parental favoritism and how you really shouldn't do it. We could talk about subplot after subplot after until the cows come home or till you go to the Indiana pig roast that you don't want to go to. We could talk about that all day long. And I guarantee it, you would miss the primary main plot of your life. This is not why Joseph's there. This is not why Joseph takes up 13 chapters of the Bible. It begins with a promise. It begins 200 years before this. When God says to a man named Abraham, and again, we read the story of Abraham, and we think it's about Abraham. It's not about Abraham. It's how God's going to use Abraham. You see, God's always calling a people out for himself. I want you to think about this. It's exactly what he did with Adam and Eve. God called Adam and Eve out for himself. That didn't work so good, did it? Then, he, then the world, he didn't like how the world's going. He's going to destroy the world with a flood. So he calls out Noah and his sons and their daughters. And he calls them out and he starts all over again. And a couple hundred years later, he comes to a man by the name of Abraham. It was Abram at the time. He changes it to Abraham. And he says to Abram, I'm going to build a nation. I'm going to build an incredible nation through you. And everybody who blesses you will be blessed. And everybody who curses you will be cursed. Look around. You're 75 years old, but I'm telling you, you're going to have descendants as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, here's where the promise comes to Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Verse 2. And I will make you into a great nation. Is this story about Abraham? This is not about Abraham. Now guess what? You're not the story either. Here's a newsflash. Red letters. The story isn't you. You're in the story. You're in the story, but the story's not you. Abraham's in the story, but the story's not about Abraham. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Why? Because I'm going to call people out for myself. It's exactly what God is still doing today. That's that's what's called church. And church is people who've been called out of some kind of darkness over here, and they now reside in the light. That's all church is. People who are in the darkness, and they're now in the light. And God's calling a group of people to come to himself. So he says this promise to Abraham. He says it again in chapter 17, 25 years later. Look at chapter 17. Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old, he makes the promise 25 years ago, he's going to fulfill his promise. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. You remember that word? What's that word? I said, El Shaddai. I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. That ought to make you tremble just a little bit. Walk before me faithfully blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and greatly increase your numbers. 
Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations, and no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations, and I will make you very fruitful. And I will make a nation of you, and kings will come from you. And I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you, your descendants, and the generations to come, to be your God, the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and to your descendants after you. Now, here's the whole point of Abraham. And I will be their God. Now, fast forward 200 years to Joseph. Why Joseph? Why 13 chapters of the Bible to Joseph? 200 years later, God made a promise to Abraham. He worked through Abraham. Are you still with me? He worked through Isaac. He worked through Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of those is Joseph. Here's the whole reason, Joseph. Here's the main plot. This is not the subplot. This is the main plot. God said to Abraham, I'm going to build a nation. And guess what? Now there's a famine in the land. And all of Jacob and all of his sons, they're about to starve to death because there's no food. And so Jacob then sends the the boys, to go buy grain from the Secretary of Agriculture and from the Vice President of Egypt. Guess who it is? It's the brother that we sold to the Ishmaelites. It's the brother that we told the dad died. It's the brother that we took the coat and we dipped it in some animal's blood and we told the dad he was long, long gone. Here's the point. When God makes a promise, he's going to fulfill it. And here's the point. God said, I'm going to build a nation through Abraham. And Joseph was now getting prepared and getting ready and being positioned by his heavenly father so that the nation wasn't about Joseph, so that the nation of Israel could be established. And so in Genesis chapter 45, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. It's a very dramatic scene. And when Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me, and when they did so, he said, I am your brother Joseph. Can you imagine that commercial? Want to get away? <laughs> I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Oh, no. He's the VP. He's the Secretary of Education. Oh, my gosh. I am your brother Joseph. And then I like the next phrase, just as if they forgot. The, the one you sold, remember that? You threw me in that well, you dirty dogs, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives. That's the main plot. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land. In the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. The next verses of scripture. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Is Joseph the story? No, but Joseph recognizes he's in the story. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household, ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father, Jacob. And say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. 
You shall live in the land of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, all I have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to it will become destitute. The main plot, why is God working with Joseph? Why is God getting Joseph prepared? Because Joseph's going to be used by God to save and preserve the nation of Israel. That's why. Let's see how the story ends. Then we'll make some application to your life. Genesis chapter 50. The dad Jacob dies. And the brothers are still not quite sure how this is all going to pan out. Long's dad's alive, you know, maybe the brother's kind of, you know, letting us live. But now dad's dead, we've got to come up with some story to make sure Joseph's going to let us live. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, and they said, well, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us? And he pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions. Now, did Jacob leave the instructions that they're about to come up with? No, it's a tall tale. They're saving their heinies. Is that a good biblical word in church? Uh, they're preserving their future inheritance and their legacy. That's probably a more politically correct way of saying it. <clears throat> I've been to too many Indiana pig roasts. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. They're making this up. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. <laughs> that was an understatement. Now, please, forgive the sins of the servants of the, of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph just wept. He couldn't believe it. After all this, you still don't trust me? After all this, you still don't believe me? His brothers came and then they threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. Just look, look at the amazing graciousness of Joseph. Don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and I'll provide for your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. Now, I want to talk about you for the remainder of our time, okay? Here, here's a great story. But to miss the main plot of this story would be to miss your future and to miss all the things that God has in store for you. But let me ask you a question. What if Joseph would have, you know, not really bought into this whole, I'm here to preserve the nation thing? What if Joseph would have been sexually immoral? What if Joseph would have remained cocky as he was at 17? What, what if Joseph would have been seeking revenge? What if he would have abandoned the whole forgiveness thing? And you know what? The family abandoned me. I, I'm going to abandon them. They, they let me go. I'm going to let them. What, what if Joseph would have done that? That's something for you to think about. Maybe today over lunch and maybe, maybe discuss that. You see, I, I think Joseph had free will. I think Joseph could have freely chosen whether or not he was going to be obedient to the call of God's, God for his life. And I think that if Joseph would not have been obedient, then God wouldn't have just wrung his hands and said, oh my goodness, you know, the whole nation of Israel is going to collapse. What are we going to do next? I hadn't thought about plan B. God, God always has people that are ready for positions of authority. And God will always use people for kingdom purposes. Here's the point. 
I think you have incredible free will. I think every day you can make choices whether or not you're going to be distracted by all the subplots in your life or whether or not the subplots in your life will propel you toward the main plot that God has in store for you. I think that Joseph could have blown it. And I know that you and I can blow it. And I know that you and I sometimes do blow it. And we miss the opportunities that our Heavenly Father has placed right before our eyes. And so the main plot for your life is you begin to ask yourself these questions. What am I good at? What's my heart? How has God wired me? How does my blood just beat a little bit warm up and my heart beat a little bit faster when I know that my Heavenly Father is calling me to do something and be something? You see, I think most of the time we're so busy with the subplots of our lives that we sometimes fail to grasp what the main plot of our life is. And we all see people who are in positions of authority and positions to do great things, and they just blow it. How do they blow it when God has set them up for incredible success? This past week in the news, I don't know if Oscar Pistorius the double amputee, the great Olympic athlete, the South African who has worldwide fame. I don't know if he was, is guilty of premeditated murder or not, but he shot his girlfriend four times through the bathroom door. And whether he's acquitted or he's proven guilty, his name will never be the same, will it? This past week, Jesse Jackson Jr. pleaded guilty to taking and stealing $750,000 of campaign money. He pleaded guilty. And the former mayor of San Diego, she's got a gambling problem. $1 billion of gambling issues and concerns. And yet, then we see a story from Kansas City this week where a homeless man's got a little bitty pot, not much bigger than my white cup up here, and, and his name is Billy Ray Harris. And Billy Ray Harris is homeless and cold. And he's outside. And, and these different people are coming by and just putting a dollar in or a dollar in the pot, a dollar in the pot. And a woman named Sarah Darling accidentally, her engagement ring fell off her ring and went into the pot. And she didn't even know it was missing until later that night. That afternoon, Billy Ray Harris is looking at the pot and his change and his dollars. And he sees this diamond ring. He thinks it's a, it's a joke takes it to a jeweler, and the jeweler said, I'll give you four grand right now for that ring. Who knows how much it was worth? At least $4,000. He said to himself, no, I'm not going to do it. My daddy was a reverend. I don't know what that's got to do with anything. I guess, a, I guess a little bit of religion somewhere sprinkled through there, maybe by osmosis. My daddy was a reverend, he said, and I just know it's the wrong thing to do. And Sarah Darling's distraught, and she just, that night she's sick, and she tries to retrace her steps. And the next morning, she goes back to this homeless man, Billy Ray Harris, and she asks him, she said, did somebody leave something kind of valuable in your pot? And, and, and he said, like, like what? And she said, well, like a ring. And he said, like this engagement ring that he pulls out of his pocket. And she just bawls. And he said, I couldn't take it. I knew it was an accident. That's an incredible story this past week. Now, if all these people in great positions can fall and fail and mess up and, and a homeless man can do the right thing, 
you'd think the body of Christ could always do the right thing then, right? I think you have incredible free will. I've been in Bible college years ago and seminary years ago and went to school with these different preacher boys and and, you know, we were all 20, 21, 23, 24. And some of these guys were just incredibly skilled. And just recently, one of these young men, wasn't immoral or illegal, but he married crazy and he's lazy. And he's just, he's just lazy. And, and his elders were telling me in the community, they were just saying, you know what, we just, we just, we just can't get him to work. I don't understand that. I, I, I don't grasp that. But every one of us in this room, we know people in ministry, choir directors, preachers, Sunday school teachers, connect group leaders. We all know people in ministry and in the church who've been in a position to do something great. And we didn't do something great. We just let the opportunity go by. I've told you before that my father was 40 and I was about 14 when we started going to church and, and for the first time really going to church and, and um, became Christians. And you know, mom was always three blocks ahead of us, but, but dad and I, we were trying to catch up. And, and there was an old Marine. I say an old Marine. He was a retired Marine. He was 42 years old. And this, well, he, re- he was old because he retired, okay? That is pretty young. I agree. That's young. And this, this Marine, and he worked for Coca-Cola, and um, he was one of our youth sponsors, and his name was Bob White. And Bob White, this Marine, would, after work and in between, you know, when I wasn't running cross-country and track and, and all those kind of sports during the wintertime when things were kind of, you know, in between seasons, Bob White and I would go run. It's 15 degrees in the frozen tundra of Indiana. And this old Marine, we'd run a mile and we'd stop and we'd do 50 push-ups. Run another mile, stop and do 50 push-ups. Run another, we'd run five miles. And I'm telling you, the whole time, I just thought we were doing push-ups and running. I thought we were crazy. It's 15 degrees out here. And this old Marine was just pouring values into my life. I think about Gary Black, our youth minister. I'd never had a youth minister before. This youth minister took me in and a whole bunch of us in and poured into us. And then Gary goes through a horrible divorce. It was so unfortunate. And while we were there and this, we, we saw this whole thing untangle and Gary then worked for Laskowski Enterprises, Woodmiser for about 10 years. And then in the last 15, 16 years, Gary's been preaching in a, a, a kind of a rural 250-member church in western Indiana, just salt of the earth, just pouring his life, shepherding a a group of people. Uh, About three months ago, uh, a friend of mine asked me to take him fishing. He's been asking me to take him fishing for about three or four years and just hasn't worked out. And so the day before, somebody, uh, there was a spot. There wasn't nobody canceled. There was a spot open. So I called him up and said, you want to go fishing? He said, yeah. I said, well, meet me at the you know, bait store, I don't know, 630 in the morning because he didn't know where the boat was. And so Danita and Emily are with me in the car. And you always take Danita and Emily with you fishing, always. Number one, they catch all the fish. Number two, number two, Emily cleans all the fish. That's the key right there. She, she's a skilled surgeon with a fillet knife. I pity the man she marries. He'd better be able to keep up with her. That's all I can say. So Denise and I and Emily would go to the bait store. And they went on. And I, I'm with him. And so I needed some pinfish, some live baits. So I got a five-gallon bucket. And I got this huge five-gallon bucket. Put about three dozen pinfish in there. And I filled it up too full. At the very last minute, I realized I didn't have any ice. And so you always need ice. 
ice for your, you know, to keep everything, the fish in the fish wells, you know, so they won't spoil. So I, I bought three bags of ice. So I handed him the bucket of, of three dozen pinfish, five-gallon bucket of water. And I got three bags of ice. And we don't get five feet out of the bait store when I drop the top bag of ice right on his foot. Doesn't have any, you know, hard shoes on, flip-flops on. You went, oh, I started laughing. I, I am laughing so hard. I cannot, I about dropped the other two bags of ice. So I put the, the three bags of ice in finally in the back of, it, of his car. And then I got the, the, the bucket. I said, oh, let me just hold it. I'll just hold the pinfish. I'll just hold the bucket. So I get the bucket. Now, you know how there's a, a little lip as you have to like get in the car? There's that little about three or four inch lip that you got to be able to step into it, right? Well, he's got a Jaguar. Yeah, I did. I did. I spilled the bucket of pinfish and bait all on the floorboard of his front of his car. I mean, what kind of a village idiot spills pinfish and bait water in a Jaguar? I, I, I did. I did. And I'm laughing. I am crying. I cannot contain my composure. I about spill more in the front of his seat. And, and I tell you that story because last Sunday... He brings three young men to this church. And for the last 15 or 16 years, he's poured his life into boys, young men, and helps to raise them who don't have families, who don't have fathers. But this man, he'll never fish with me again, but he brings, he brings these young boys who need to be tutored and mentored. What is the main plot of your life? What is it? What is your heart's desire? Is it to save babies? Then get involved with Saul in the Pregnancy Crisis Center. Is your job to make money and fund ministries? Then make money. Some of you in this room, you just keep working, though you don't even need the money. You keep working to fund ministries and missions. Do you have the gift of organization? Then organize. Do you have the gift of hospitality? Be hospitable. What is it that God has wired you for? Is it children? Is it middle schoolers? Is it high schoolers? Do you have the gift of being able to invite people to come to church? Come to church and you invite all your friends and all your family for the Easter season. You see, you're in the story, but you're not the story. You're in it, but, but you're not it. And so what do you do then? Well, number one, he becomes your savior. For you to understand your role in the story, Jesus Christ becomes your Savior. Now, how does he become your Savior? Well, you say, I need a Savior. I'm not the story. I'm, I need to be in the story. I'm still out of the story, even though I'm not the story. I want to get in the story. And so Jesus Christ becomes your Savior. And he saves you of your sins, and you confess your sins. And you have a change of mind called repentance. And you begin to walk with him. Number two, he becomes your Lord. And when Jesus becomes your Lord, everything in your life changes. That's when the subplots then begin to see, well, that's how those have formed me. Or maybe those are how those things have delayed me. Or maybe those are how things have distracted me. But when he becomes your Lord, you begin to see how the subplots fit into your life. And they don't dominate your thinking. They don't eclipse your vision. And so when he becomes your Lord, I think you do two things. For Jesus to become your Lord, number one, you humble yourself. 
And when you humble yourself, again, you realize that the world doesn't revolve around you. You're not always trying to make yourself famous, but you humble yourself and you allow God to become the Lord of your life. And number two, you learn to seek first his kingdom. It's very interesting. There's about a thousand doctors in a group called Maximized Living. And these thousand doctors have kind of made a coalition together and they've come up with a pretty good slogan. And they'll, they'll say this, we're not trying to put God first. We're trying to have God in the center of everything we do. Well, whether you want to call it God first or whether you want to call God in the center, I, I like that. But we're not trying to put God first. We're trying to make sure that God's in the center of our marriage that God's in the center of our home, that God's in the center of our business, that God's in the center of our parenting. We're not just trying to put God first. We're trying to have God at the center of who we are and of everything that we do. You know what the greatest landmine is? We're now concluding our series on landmines. The greatest landmine is you thinking you're the story. And it's so hard to teach 12-year-olds that, that, you know, that it's, they're not the center of the universe. But it's also hard to teach 22-year-olds, isn't it? That they're not the center of the universe. I know some 32-year-olds and some 42-year-olds and some 52-year-olds. That's still very young, by the way. Those are landmines. You get this landmine right, and every other landmine will fall into place. Now, when we come to Jesus... And we see that Jesus is the ultimate one who will do what Adam and Eve couldn't do. They couldn't call themselves out. Noah couldn't do it. Even Abraham couldn't do it. And ultimately, Jesus Christ can do it. And Jesus Christ calls us to be the church. And he says, I will build my church, and not even the gates of Hades will prevail against it. I believe that Jesus Christ is calling you and me today to build his church. Jesus Christ is calling you and me today. That's the main plot of my life and of your life. And and, and if he doesn't, if if we don't do it, he'll use somebody else. It's not like he's wringing his hands thinking, oh my gosh, if Harborside doesn't pull through, I don't know what we're going to do. If you and I don't do it, he'll he'll use other people. But I want to be in the story. And then when it comes to Christ, we see that he's not just in the story, he is the story, right? I mean, Jesus is the story. And so what was the main plot of Jesus' life? Well, Jesus talks about Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus said, this is my main plot. My subplots might be healing. My subplots might be teaching children. My subplots might be being very, very nice to women. But here's my main plot. This is why I came. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, how's he going to do that? How would he do that? Well, Matthew chapter 16 tells us exactly how. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. You can make him your savior. And you can make him your Lord. To make him your Lord, you humble yourself. You humble yourself. You know what he says? If you humble yourself, 
I will raise you up. I will exalt you. He doesn't say, I might raise you up. I'm thinking about raising you up. I could raise you up. It's a good idea to raise you up. You humble yourself. I will exalt you. He tells us to seek him first, or we put him in the center of everything. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things just keep coming to you. They just keep being added unto you. So, what I want you to do today is look underneath your seats, and you'll see a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, it says, my part in God's story. I'm going to ask you to find a pen, or we got some, if you need a pen, some of our ushers will give you a pen or whatever. But I, I want you to write this down. We're going to let you leave today on your own, on your own leisure. But I want to help you today to spend some time to actually write down the main plot of your life. Why? Why are you in the story? Why are you here? Why has God positioned you? Why is God putting you where he's put you? So I'm going to ask you today, this is between you and your heavenly father. This is for you maybe for the first time in your life. And maybe you don't know what your story is. Well, say that. Father, I don't know. I'm still struggling to find out. Or Father, I know exactly what my main plot is. But I got all these different distractions. Father, you've positioned me to do this and this and this and this and this for your kingdom. Now give me the courage and the strength. Give me the faithfulness to do exactly what you've called me to do.